sign up yet, we'd love for you to sign up for our TBA Connect system. This is a great way for you to stay connected here at TBA and to sign up for different things like classes, like the class that we have coming up this summer. The easiest way for you to sign up is to text NEXT to the number on your screen right here. One of the best parts about this system is that you can give from anywhere. So if you're going on vacation this summer and you need to still give your tithes and offerings, all you need to do is text GIVE to the TBA Connect number. And don't forget that in the back of the auditorium, we have our next steps area. And what is this for? It's for you to find your next step in your walk with Christ and to help you find your next step here at TBA as well. Whether you want to sign up to volunteer for a certain position or you want to find out about D groups and small groups, there's always someone waiting at Next Steps to help you with whatever you need. We've got a few announcements today, so let's see what's coming up. First up, starting this summer on July 17th, we're going to be having a How to Study Your Bible course. This is going to be run by Jamie Bennett and a few others, and it's going to be really amazing. So whether you're just starting out reading the Bible or you've been reading it since you were a child, this is going to be a great course for you to really sink your teeth into what it really means to study the Bible and how you can do that. Trust me, you're not going to want to waste this chance to study with Jamie and to really learn from him. He's really brilliant when it comes to apologetics and Bible study and really understanding the Word of God. So remember that this class starts on July 17th and it's going to be on Sunday nights ongoing from there. It's going to start from 5 and go to 7 p.m. So we'd love to see you there. And tonight marks the first night of Soteria Summer Nights. Remember through the month of July, there is no youth group on Wednesday nights, but for these first two Sundays, we're going to be having an epic party, inviting our sixth graders to come and join us and see what youth group is all about. This first one is gonna be a wet night, so make sure you bring a swimsuit. There's gonna be food and fun, it's gonna be amazing. And you will not wanna miss next week because there's gonna be a mechanical bowl. So we'll see you there. And here is where I normally would tell you about our food pantry. This is an amazing ministry that we have in Highland City. And luckily for us, the food pantry has been going amazingly well. And with your donations and your help, we're able to upgrade the food pantry this week with new refrigerators and new freezers. And so because of that, we're not gonna have our normal food pantry this Saturday, but we'll see you on the next one. And with that, that's all for announcements. Today, we're gonna be continuing in our Ephesians series, Sit, Walk, Stand. And remember, keep on reading through Ephesians as we go through. We're heading through chapter three and into chapter four soon. So be reading those two chapters back to back. And here's Jamie Bennett with the message. Well, good morning, good morning. Family, friends, neighbors, I want to welcome you here. My name is Jamie Bennett, and I have this awesome privilege and honor to stand before you as we continue in the book of Ephesians. So, Ben, man, I'm really glad there's announcements between that video that we watched and what we had, because I don't know if I'd be able to do this. Baptisms, those are my favorite times when we see when we see a visual representation of what the Lord has done in each and every one of our lives, it's hard to hold that together. So if you're here for the first time this morning, what a joy it is to welcome you to this place. I trust that you've come to worship the Lord and to hear from him today. And good morning to everyone and to all of you online as well. So before we jump in today, I can't help but think about the landscape of our current cultural environment. I find that Christians living in America are in this unique and maybe somewhat troubling moment of history. But we should not find ourselves distraught over all these troubling things that, that we hear about every day in this world or in this nation. Christ is risen and God is good. 
And that's a cause for great joy and celebration. And so tomorrow, as we jump into America's 246th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, we celebrate a lot of different things. We celebrate freedom, right? And we just sung about it because we have freedom in Christ. So in that document, in the Declaration of Independence, we find the founding of a nation of people built from a unified decree that all men are created equal and all are free. And the U.S. Was, is to be a place that would exemplify the idea of unity in diversity. And what a great privilege we have as Americans, right? The freedom together like this. But it's a great privilege and a great responsibility. So let's sit with that for a moment. We think about that in gratitude and what, what has been given to us but there's a weightiness to it as well, the responsibility that we have. So while America may stand or fall, and while its ideals may be great or greatly forgotten, there's one thing that we also as Christians need to remember. Christians are not caught up in the lofty places of Washington, D.C., or the lakes of Minnesota, or the hills of Tennessee. (laughs) Some of y'all got that. Instead, instead we reside with the Lord, right? We reside with the Lord who has brought us up to his throne in the heavenly places so that we can sit with him and find ourselves positioned in his place. We just sung about sitting at his feet and he has brought us to that place. The seat of authority, the seat of authority over spiritual powers. And in this place, we are but ambassadors in this world and in this nation. And as, as you're reading through the book of Ephesians, much of the world and the picture of it is painted as enemy-occupied territory. I like how C.S. Lewis describes this. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise, and he is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So when you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless radio from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going to church. See, what Lewis is saying there is that when we gather together as a local church body, we're we're participating in spiritual warfare. That's what we're doing here. So also as we go throughout the world, we represent another kingdom, John 18, 36. And we are in this world, but not of it, John 17, 16. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We must take the message that has been given to us by our king to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 8. And we implore men and women everywhere to be reconciled to God. So if you've been following along as we've studied Ephesians, we've been tracking this vision of the ladder, which we we summarize with the words sit, walk, and stand. And if you were paying attention last week, the idea of unity and diversity comes from what Christ has done 
in establishing his cosmic kingdom. Now that word cosmic comes from cosmos, which is a Greek word that just means all of created reality. Whether it's spiritual or physical, everything that, that uh, is created, which means everything that is not God, the Greek word for that is cosmos. So when we say cosmic reality, we are talking about the Lord is over everything. So he has established his cosmic kingdom. And this we call the church. And the church is a holy temple. And it is a dwelling place for the spirit of God. That's what we talked about last week. So my assignment today is to open up the third chapter of Ephesians, which puts us in the last chapter of Paul's discussion of our position, our, where we are seated with Christ. In Ephesians, we celebrate how the sovereign Lord and creator has given through faith the grace gift of salvation to both Jew and Gentile, and how the great mystery is revealed in the gospel preached by the apostle Paul, and the part that the church has to play as the unified body of Christ. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I hope that you do, would you turn to chapter three in Ephesians? Let's pray as we open up the word of God. Oh God, your never failing providence sets in order all things, both in heaven and on earth. Put away from us all hurtful things and give us those things that are profitable for us. Examine our hearts as we examine your word. And may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So starting in Ephesians chapter three, the apostle states, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So before we continue from there, I wanna pause for a minute and take note of two interesting things here. First, we see that Paul is starting to make a transition from the parts of his epistle, the parts that we call chapters one and two, which is this theological, theological treatise that forms the grounding of the practical sections we'll see as we get into chapters four and five. And in chapter three, Paul begins to offer up a prayer to God. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then begins to do a prayer, but then he stops. He breaks off and he doesn't come back to that till verse 14. And since we're going through verse 13, you're just gonna have to wait till next week to get to know what Paul prays. So hopefully you're reading along and you see that. So this is one long sentence. As we heard, as we started this series, Paul likes to do that. To do that. He writes long, long sentences. And chapter, our verses two through 13 is one long sentence consisting of 189 words. And here he's pausing with a reflection on how it is that Gentiles are brought into God's plan. So today we're gonna to see that Paul wants to undergird the theology he just gave by highlighting that it is his ministry 
and the gospel that he is preaching, which is divine in origin. And so his readers can have assurance in what he has written, and we can too. And the second thing that we notice here is that Paul proclaims that he is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. So in the Greek, if you were to to examine the Greek wording of the New Testament, you would see that the noun Jesus Christ is in what's called the genitive case. So typically the genitive case indicates a relationship. And in this case, it indicates a possessive relationship. So in English, when we do that, we would put a noun with an apostrophe and an S to indicate possession of something, right? So in the genitive and the way that we translate it or the way that it is translated is you'll see of used as the linking word because that that word does not actually exist in the Greek passage. It's assumed. So if we were to rewrite this sentence, it might look something more like this. I, Paul, am Jesus Christ's prisoner. Paul is literally claiming that he belongs to Christ in such a way that he is like a prisoner. And if you remember in the book of Acts, after Paul receives this vision of Christ on his way to Damascus, the Lord commands Ananias to minister to Paul. And you probably remember from that story that Ananias wasn't exactly happy with that idea. But then the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul is a prisoner of Christ. But my brothers and sisters, we should all long for this title ourselves What manner of prison is it that we would be in under Christ? What does it mean to be chained to the one who is good, loving, and gentle? Is not the prison of Christ also called the love of God? So there might indeed be suffering in this place a little while in our current time. But has Christ not subjected all things and arisen to the throne of justice and mercy. So we've been examining these great doctrines of the Lord's sovereign election and how God has called us to be seated with him. We could think of this as the heavenly prison of God's love and may we always be shut up in it. I like how Charles Spurgeon talks about this. He says, there is no restraint about this prison He who gets into it finds for the first time true liberty. Then his mind is free from all its bondage. Then his faculties find themselves in a sea where they may swim. Then are his purest longings gratified. Then are his passions allowed to take wing and mount as they will. Then the soul has space to flow onwards. And when it comes fully to the love of God, the newborn soul is in its element. See, the prison that Christ bonds us to is is himself. And since God is love, then we know that this prison is nothing other 
than the love of God for us. But we do need to be careful here. You see, throughout history, there have been distortions that come from the world system and from the enemy. And the distortion I'm discussing isn't necessarily the difference between right and wrong, but one of twisted truth. You see, in our world, you'll hear common advice that to love others, you must first love yourself. That's an example of what I'm talking about. My friends, why in the world would we want to bond ourselves to ourselves? That's a prison of a different making. When we put ourselves first in our order of passions, then we are actually in league with Satan and his demons. And tradition tells us that this was the cause of the enemy's fall, that he considered himself before God. So we have to rightly order our passions. It's God comes first, then other people, then we can follow through with the concerns that we have for ourselves. And if we get that order right, then rather than being in league with Satan, we might stand with Christ and step on the enemy's head. May we join Paul, brothers and sisters, and consider us ourselves as prisoners of Christ so that we might know God and grow in his grace. So suppose that we probably ought to get back to the text since we've only covered two verses and we got a few more to go here. So, but but before we do that, I want to talk about an interesting and ironic twist that we see in the language here. Paul says that he's Christ's prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. And we know that Paul was commissioned by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But the irony here is that after he returned to Jerusalem, he was imprisoned because he was falsely accused by some religious leaders that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. So he literally was imprisoned because of Gentiles. And the Roman government put him in prison And then he wrote these letters to Gentiles. The double irony here is that the Jewish religious leaders had always been commissioned by God to be a light to the nations. And we see that throughout all of Old Testament writing. So what Paul was doing was what the Jewish religious leaders should have been doing. And Paul was not only commissioned by Christ to be the bearer of that light, so he fulfilled the Israelite commission but he was also persecuted by those that were supposed to be doing this evangelistic work. The triple irony at this point is that Paul was one of them before he met Jesus. But that's how our God works. He takes what is done for evil and he turns it into something good. And Paul is a prime example of how God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called by him. Okay, so moving on. Paul continues, he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So here we note a couple of things. First, we see that Paul is confirming that the mystery of the gospel was revealed to him. 
But this is not a product of Paul's own theological creativity, but it was given to him by Christ himself. And so we have to remember that in all of these matters, Paul is a self-proclaimed steward, not an inventor. So grace and reconciliation are God's work, and they belong to God's agenda. And God has revealed this to Paul so that he might convey to others the insight that he has received. Repeatedly in this one long sentence, Paul emphasizes that he is a minister of the gospel due to God's grace. And he reminds us that he is the least of all saints. In other places, he says, I am the chief of sinners. You see, Paul never forgot where he was and God's calling us and God's call on his life was because of the God's grace gift to him. So we also see in this passage four times the word mystery to describe the theology that he has just written about in the letter, in the beginning parts of the letter that we've already studied. In the word, the word in the Greek is mysterion. It stands for a hidden or secret thing not obvious to our understanding. So today we might use the word mystery as in murder mystery or as something that needs to be solved by us or something that human beings need to put together kind of like a puzzle piece. But Paul doesn't quite mean it that way. See, when Paul uses his word in relation to Christ, he's talking about what theologians call progressive revelation. You see, God reveals himself in many ways and in many different times all throughout history. And the full understanding of God's work is not realized until he provides increased revelation to his chosen prophets and apostles. This same word is used in the LXX. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel, we see this word used four times when Daniel was called by King Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his disturbing dream. You see, that dream was a mystery to the king. He did not understand it. And Daniel was the only one out of all the court magicians and everyone else and all the wise men to be able to unpack that mystery for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel makes one important qualifier. He says, that he is able to interpret the dream because the mystery was revealed to him by God. Not because of any wisdom that he had, but God revealed it to him so that that man may understand. So the word mystery doesn't implore us to search out some hidden meaning or some hidden religious practice like the pagan religions did in Ephesus that Paul was writing to and in his time. Instead, that mystery is referring to Christ's first advent as the unveiling of things that were once hidden. So I think it's important to point out something that we learn in this passage. Paul explains very clearly that the mystery of Christ was revealed by the Spirit to the prophets of old and to his apostles. This is true even for us today. There is one faith delivered to the saints as Jude, the brother of Jesus, has told us. And this faith is mediated to us through the scriptural record of what the apostles and the prophets received from Christ. So with the coming of Christ 
God has fulfilled all his plan for all mankind. Christ is the ultimate revelation, and he is the point of all revelation. So let us never be deceived by those who would claim new revelations that go beyond what Christ has given us. Christ, who is our hope, our savior, and the one we owe all allegiance to. See, that revelation that Paul is speaking about is for all who will receive it, but the revelation itself came through those who were called to receive it and communicate it. The revelation of God is complete in Christ. Nothing needs to be added or taken away for mankind to know all that they need to know about God to become part of his people. And that revelation is delivered to all subsequent generations down to us through Holy Scripture. Now, so that his readers are clear on what he is communicating, Paul continues on by explaining what this mystery is. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The mystery is this. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus in the gospel. So to understand this, we need to ask a question. What is this mystery here? What exactly was once hidden and now revealed? So we should understand that from the book of Genesis, God promised Abraham that all of his descendants were to be a blessing to all of the nations. That's repeated over and over in the Torah. And we also see the call of Israel to be a witness to the nations by the prophets. And we even see a direct call to all the nations in the Psalms, Psalm 117. Read that tomorrow as you go into this uh, celebration. Psalm 117, it's almost like the Gentiles were right there with the Israelites worshiping alongside of them at the temple. So that idea was not hidden. The Israelites were supposed to be a blessing to the world. They had a call by God. That's nothing different. The Old Testament also hints and suggests an evangelistic approach that the nation of Israel was supposed to have. They were supposed to convert the pagans that surrounded them to the one true God. So what exactly was hidden and revealed only through Christ? And the answer to this can also be found in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 11, we find that the descendants of Noah spoke one language. And because of this, they should have been united as one group of people under God. But instead of using their one language to govern the earth cooperatively, I can't say that, so with God, man rebelled and tried to exalt himself with the building of great cities 
and a great tower. John Calvin states it this way concerning what happened at Babel. He says, humanity gathered not to worship, but to excite war against God. So in judgment at man's feeble attempt to make something of themselves, God confused their languages and scattered them people into all the nations. And those nations became increasingly pagan, walking away from the truth that they had received. And those pagan practices began, we know that they were also worshiping false gods and demons in place of their creator. But then God did something different. He called one nation and he set it apart from himself. That's the nation of Israel. So that they might be a witness to God for all the other nations, knowing also that one day through that nation, he would bring forth the Messiah. You see, Israel knew their task to be a witness and blessing to all, their, all the other nations. And even though they failed that repeatedly, that call never left them completely. You see, the prophets the, in the latter days of the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come and claim his throne and victory as the sovereign Lord of Israel and over all the nations. And even later Jews, those in Jesus' time, they would have read the prophets and had a hope for the coming of the Messiah. So, what was hidden from the Old Covenant revelation? It's how God would not only send the Messiah to claim his throne, but that the Messiah would be the mediator for the Spirit of God to indwell both Jew and Gentile to create one united people of God. That was never understood by the Jews from the Old Testament. But with the light of Christ, we see that what he has done. No longer would the nations be separated out as they were at the judgment of Babel. People of all nations and tongues would be called according to the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Jesus Paul's reflecting on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the first fruits of cosmic universal redemption when the Holy Spirit was poured out equally upon all who would be called by him. Pastor theologian R.C. Sproul says, the miracle of tongues where everyone heard the gospel in his own language provided evidence that God was breaking down the cultural an ethnic division imposed at Babel, revealing that the true Israel is defined not by tongue or culture, but by common faith in the Messiah. Linguistic and cultural differences remain, but the power of the Spirit enables us to break through them for the sake of the gospel. The reversal of Babel has begun, and as the elect from every nation gather before the Lord's throne to worship him, we join in with them. You see, the mystery of Christ is wrapped up in drawing all people groups to himself so that he would form one holy, set apart, called people of God. Paul continues, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So one of the key themes as we study Ephesians is the way that the material world is shaped by the spiritual, namely that God is sovereign over it all. And you'll notice as we go through the book, verse by verse, we see God at work in all of human history bringing about the goodness that only he can design through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the redeemer of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's why throughout Ephesians, Paul mentions the heavenly places. You see that a few times. We see Christ exalted on the throne in the heavenly places. And we see that it's from this place that the blessings of the Holy Spirit come from. And we'll also see as we approach the end of Ephesians that a great battle is occurring against some of the forces from the heavenly places. But interestingly, interestingly, in this passage, we see that not only is the material world that we live in affected by those heavenly places, but also because of what God has done, the material world affects the heavenly places. You see, the mystery of Christ is also revealed as the wisdom of God because it's through Christ that the eternal purposes of God are made manifest against the powers and principalities that exist in the heavenly places. What God has done through Christ impacts every created thing for all of eternity. That includes the angelic and the demonic forces, those beings that exist in the heavenly places. The union of one body of believers, the church, displays the wisdom for all of those spiritual powers to see. You see, the reversal of divisions in God's creation is a defeat for the divisive forces in our world. Paul is explaining here that it's through the means of a united church that Christ's declaration of defeat is put on display. This should speak to our hearts, church. The Lord Jesus saves us as individuals, but that's not what he saves us for. He saves us so that we may participate together in one holy community that is made up of all types of believers that is on display for all the cosmic, material, spiritual forces throughout our created reality to see. It's like, it's like a master painting, and we're part of the painting, and it's being displayed against those forces for them to see what God has done. But all of that said, we tend to have a problem in our modern world. We forget that the world is comprised of much more than just the material things that we see in front of us. You see, there is a spiritual realm that we are not only part of, but both the spiritual and the physical realm are part of the same reality that God created. You can't have one without the other. And as modern people, we like to compartmentalize things. So we put the spiritual realm in one compartment and the physical realm in another compartment. And we treat them as if they are two separate things that impact our life differently. Part of the reason for this, I think, 
is because of the philosophy of enlightenment philosophers. People like Rene Descartes, you, that guy that had the famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. And that's impacted all of our thinking uh, throughout and, and since then. You see, Descartes was looking for a foundation to build his belief on. But instead of looking to the Lord and to the church, he looked within himself and then he built up from there. He looked within himself and all he could see as he looked inside were his own inner thoughts. And so he created this idea that a human being is nothing more than a spirit functioning inside a human body that functions more like a machine. Human beings are nothing more than a ghost in the machine according to this type of thinking. And since that time, modern people have adopted this idea that there is a separation between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. But this is nothing new. So Descartes may have put a modern twist on that idea, but it's the same 2,000-year-old heresy we call Gnosticism. And the Apostle Paul will have none of that for us. Christian brothers and sisters, the reality that we are asked to examine by the Apostle Paul is that the physical world and the spiritual world are united. They are not separate realities, but they are part of the same universal reality that Jesus Christ created and for which he rules. And as a side note, you know uh, that famous main, uh, that famous saying that I mentioned, I think therefore I am, well, that's not the only famous saying that we get from Rene Descartes. Another saying was inspired from how he died. It's very tragic. He was trampled by a horse. And so we get the saying, don't put Descartes before the horse from that. So, so, okay, so, yeah, that's pretty bad. Listen, there's going to be lots of dad jokes that come out tomorrow, and I thought I'd start it off for us, so. And, and he didn't die that way. You can look it up. I think he had a normal death like the rest of us will. So I wanted to emphasize that it's very important that we have to shed those false ideas that have dichotomized our thinking and that we begin to see the reality that God has designed and how special and amazing this reality is for God's elect people. When we unite together, and when we boldly and confidently express our faith in Jesus, we declare in the physical and the spiritual realms that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he has implemented a plan that will impact all of creation for all of eternity. That's the church's purpose, and it should also remind us of our mission. So finally, Paul concludes this section with a bit of encouragement. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, Paul's readers would have been informed that he was writing to them from prison. And Paul offers this encouragement to them so that they don't become discouraged for his suffering or for any suffering that they might have to go through that they have to endure because they are Gentiles called out of this pagan society and into the church. 
we too can embrace this message knowing that what God has worked out, even in the midst of suffering, is for our own good. That's why he says, for your glory, because we have a promise as we pass from this life into, into what God has planned for us, we get to see him face to face. That's good. Church, the overall message of the passage we looked at today is this. We know that the gospel message for all people that Christ has called, whether Jew or Gentile, and that we are authentic partakers of the inheritance promised to Abraham. Because this message that Paul is conveying is of divine origin. And we also know that it is extraordinarily, extraordinarily powerful. So much so that the powers and authorities in the heavenly places stand in awe of what God has done. In a moment, we're going to pray. So would you go ahead and stand with me? And band, you can come up. Why is it that we stand when we sing songs to God in worship? Have you ever thought about that? Certainly it's because we respect the Lord's name, the name that we worship. But it's also because the king is here. He is right here with us. And even the angels and the demons stand in awe and fear of what the Lord has done. So the question I have for you today is, do you likewise stand in awe of what God has done? Let that sit on your hearts today as we approach these songs and as we worship him this morning. Let's pray. Well, good morning, Father. Creator and sustainer of all that is. And good morning, Lord Jesus. Savior, Lord of all creation. Good morning, Holy Spirit, comforter and sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, glorious Trinity, have mercy on us. Let the words that we examine today impact our hearts this morning, Lord, as we think about the amazing thing that you have done. Help us, help us, Lord, as we approach you in worship. Help us believe even when we struggle with that, Lord. Be with us this morning to guide us back to your throne and to be sitting at your feet. We confess our love for you and we praise your holy name. Amen.